Blood Run Through Me by Heather Woods Broderick. And let's get today's guest on the phone so we can learn a lot more about that track. Dan, you with me? I'm with you. Wonderful. Good start. Good start. Um, So, Dan Goodwin, you are a mixer. You're a producer. You're an engineer. You're a hell of a photographer, but you're also a really good musician. Um, So, Dan... Also on social media, D. James Goodwin, and also your website and all of that. We'll get that out a couple of times. But um, first time that you're on the show, and it's about damn time that we got together here yeah, on this yeah. show. And um, Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, I am too. And uh, it's just, yeah, I've had so many um, recording engineers on here. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I have to get you on. So um, tell me what we just listened to, because I really liked that. I, when you sent me all these tracks, I, I went through them. And that one really struck a chord with me by Heather Woods Broderick. So Blood Run oh, Through yeah. Me. Talk to me about that. And then we're going to get a little bit deeper into your life. Sure, sure. Um, Heather and I met a bunch of years ago and we worked on, um, well, she she went on tour with this artist named Jesse Marchant, who I've done a couple of records with, and she liked my work on his records. So she reached out to me on the last record she was making, um, which was called Invitation. And we ended up doing that. She had a band come up to Woodstock when I had my studio in Woodstock. I produced that record. And then when she was ready to make the new one, she wanted to sort of pivot into a different direction. And she thought it would be interesting just to be basically her and I in a room Mm. at my studio. And we pretty much, she had pretty well fleshed out demos in terms of song structures and stuff. And then we pretty much re-recorded everything, just the two of us. So that track, I played drums and bass on that track and guitar. She played some keyboards, sang, of course. And then I, I sang the male voice in the second verse of that song. Wow. Um, we were thinking, we were thinking about some other guest singers and then I just did a temp track. We were going to have Paul Banks from Interpol sing on it, but I sang a temp track for him to hear. And Heather was like, no, 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 you, it's gotta be you. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> it's gotta be Paul. And she was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It sounds so good. So we ended up, I deferred to her and uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite tracks on that record, which is called Labyrinth. Labyrinth. came out uh, late last year, yeah, and it's a really great record. Mm, yeah, the song really, she, like I said, of, mm, went right through me. Yeah, she's, she's one of my favorite artists that I've ever worked with just as a human and as a creative thinker, and we we just have a great rapport working together, so nice. uh, I'm glad that you like it, too. Yeah, yeah, I really do. I'll definitely be spinning that some more. Um, so, Dan, I always like start off with saying this is your life, and let's go back in time to when you were a little tyke. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up not far from here, um, mostly in Germantown. Oh actually. yeah. 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 I grew up in Tivoli. And, uh, oh, right on. Yeah. So I'm a local boy. Yeah. Yeah. And aside from a few stints of being elsewhere, I've always found myself in the Hudson Valley for better or for worse. And, um, yeah, that's where it all started. That's where it all started. You were a kid when you got into music, I assume. What was your first instrument? First instrument was, if I remember correctly, saxophone, mm. and it was going to be drums, but I think my parents got cold feet and <laughs> decided to steer me in the direction of a quieter instrument, <laughs> which probably worked out to their advantage in the long run. But um, yeah, I started with saxophone, so I played sax in school band, and then eventually picked up guitar, and then just by virtue of being in the studio, as I got older, I sort of learned to play other instruments because I had to. Uh-huh. And I, it, it, as a result of that, like I can play a lot of stuff somewhat well, but I'm not a master of anything, which has always sort of bummed me out. But at the same time, I feel like I'm a, if you put an instrument in front of me, I can make music on it, which is something that I've always appreciated about mm-hmm. the way I sort of learned. My parents never really like forced me to do lessons or anything like that. They just loved music. So they were supportive of me exploring it, you know? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so Germantown School had like a band there? They have, they don't have an orchestra, or do they? They just have a band, right? Yeah, it was mostly like, a, yeah, it was a really small, probably like 20-piece band or something like that. And, and there was jazz band, too, that I was in. Oh, but nice. that was a, a That was a short-lived experience. I think the school didn't really have the money to keep that program going. And what were you listening to when you were in high school? 
Um, that's a funny one. When I when I was younger, my parents would do this thing. Before my parents divorced, we would always do frequently, probably like once a month, we had this thing where they would make mixtapes. Love it. Of just like the first 20 seconds of a song or something. And it would, we would play Name That Tune. And I still have this very vivid memory of us sitting at the dining table playing Name That Tune. And so just from that, I got a huge love of music. And I think it really honed my ability to identify melody and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't their intent. I mean, my parents were just casual music fans. And for in fact, for a long time, my dad was like, no, 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 you should get a real job. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And, right. and I just, you know, in my rebellion, I didn't get a real job. But um, so I listened to a lot of the music that they loved, which was, you know, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Zappa, stuff like that. And then as I sort of grew into my own self, I found jazz and mostly like avant-garde jazz was a big one for me when I was younger. And I think I was like in my teens, I was in this search for the weirdest possible music because I just liked being, I generally liked being the weird guy mm -hmm. in the room. Mm -hmm. So you it was probably it. a lot because I'm a, yeah, I was like a contrarian and I felt comfortable with that. So mm -hmm. I would just listen to the weirdest stuff I could find. <laughs> and um, it led me down many, many roads. But a lot of what I was listening to in school was like in the pop world, I listened to a ton of REM. Um, I loved R.E.M. a lot. Mm -hmm. I loved the band Red House Painters, mm -hmm. which some, some people listening will know from back in the 90s and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, But I never grew out of classic rock. I always loved the classic rock stuff and loved the Beatles, loved Zeppelin and Zappa and all the progressive rock stuff. My dad really loved prog rock, so mm -hmm. I was big into that. King Crimson, time. that kind of a thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Crimson, uh, Yes. Yep. Gentle Giant, band, Jethro Tull. The band old like Genesis. That. I mean, come on. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's funny. The old Genesis, the first, like, five Genesis records, I always loved them, but I wasn't deep, deeply connected with them until maybe about four years ago. And only because I, I'm a huge Peter Gabriel fan and have been for a long time, but for some reason there was always, like, a some disconnect with me where I didn't go back to the old Genesis stuff. I only knew them, I think because of when I was growing up, the late era Phil Collins Genesis stuff was so prevalent to mm -hmm. me on the radio and stuff mm -hmm. that I probably retreated from it. And then maybe four or five years ago, I just randomly put on the land lies down on Broadway, which I've always liked. Mm. But for some reason in that moment, when I put it on, it all hit me. And I was like, Oh my God, this is my favorite music ever. Mm -hmm. And you know, this was being, I'm 46 now, so I was 42-ish when this happened. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was almost like hearing, you know, when you reach a certain point in your life, you you don't have that innocence of youth anymore. Mm -hmm. So when some music hits you like that and grabs you by the collar the way that does, it's really kind of important. It, it's and almost it's like, a long time like listening happened, to it know? for the first time, probably, right? Exactly. If you, yeah. 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 And it just that feeling washes over you like you're 13 years old again and you're like the first time you've ever heard a distorted guitar or something. And and so anyway, that was a, a kind of a re a real a rebirth of inspiration for me, like coming back in touch with those first few Genesis records, which was huge mm. for me. And I, and I listened to I think I listened to Lamb Lies Down and Selling England by the Pound for like six months straight. Mm -hmm. It just didn't like. If you asked my wife, she'd be like, oh, my God, enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's just constant. Right, right. But, look, it's a new discovery. I get that. I get that because sometimes yeah. you don't listen. The, or the, the yes, too, like the older yes, you know, like you just oh yeah, don't listen to it every day. But then it comes back and it's like, oh, my God, this stuff is like never put it down. It always has to be up there. You know, it's just so amazing. Absolutely. Now, didn't you go see um, Peter Gabriel? Was that you? I did. Yeah, yeah. I saw him on my birthday. Well, two days after my birthday in September. And I had never seen him before. So it was huge for me to see him. It was like a it was just one of those bucket list things. And um, we got tickets to see him at Madison Square Garden. Actually, friends of mine hooked me up with these really amazing tickets as mm. a birthday gift. Oh. And um, yeah, it was really it was special. The first when I heard the first few words come out of his mouth, I just was in tears because oh, oh. his, his i mean his music has been just a huge part of my musical language for as long as i can remember so 
it was pretty nice to see him. And you have our friend Tony Levin up on stage with him. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Local legend. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So cool. So after, um, so did you have a band in high school going back in time again? I did. Yeah. I had, um, the first band I had was a band called Capital Burnout. <laughs> and <laughs> we were like, you know, classic sort of post-punk high school band. I played guitar. We had a drummer, bass player and a singer. And, um, I think we maybe went through a couple of different name changes, but that's the only one I can remember. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I remember we played like school dances. We would play the um, Elks Lodge or the Veterans BFW kind of places. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was my first, that was my first band. In fact, that was the band. It's because of that, because well, well, to put this in context, I was the guy in the band who had the four track. Uh -huh. So for whatever reason, we would practice at my dad's house in the basement mm -hmm. and I had a four track and when we would, so we would play after school and then everybody would leave and go home and then I'd replace everybody's parts wow. on the four track and then I'd play it for them the next day and they'd be like, dude, that's not what we played. Wow, wow. <laughs> but I think that that's when I sort of learned how to make records and become a producer, I guess, but without even realizing it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Almost by accident, you know? And yeah. yeah, totally. So you spent a little time at, uh, at, at Bard. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Bard dropout. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a unique place and we all have stories from Bard. So uh, especially having oh, yeah, grown sure. up in Tivoli, were you there during the days of Adolf's or was that are you too young yeah, for definitely. that yeah yeah no, no, definitely and i also remember the ravine houses which don't exist anymore mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah so they were interesting and there was no way in 2023 there's no way any college would ever build anything like that again no no <laughs> i feel you know i had leon botstein on about a month or so ago when i talked to him about oh, adolf's yeah. and i just couldn't resist you know um yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was such a fun place. Such a fun place. Yeah. For so sure. going into recording, did you ever like if you weren't doing music, did you ever what would you be doing? Do you know? Or would you it, was it always just I'm going into music and that's that? I mean, it was pretty much always going into music, you know, for a really short period of time. I considered law school. Mm hmm. It's something my mom, my mom always wanted to do that for herself. And I would never say that my mom pushed me in that direction. She, my mom was always 100% supportive of what I wanted to do. But it, she gave me an appreciation for what the law is and how it can empower people's lives. And I guess I've always been politically aware. So for me, I, I had this brief love affair with the idea of being a civil rights attorney. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason... It just never, I was, I just am not predisposed to school in general. So like I went to Bard and realized that I just didn't like being in school and it was too expensive to waste money on for me. Mm -hmm. And at that point I was already kind of assisting in the recording studio and just making coffee and cleaning toilets. But knowing that, you know, I wanted to be making music in some capacity and that was kind of all that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. I did, um, Filmmaking has always been a huge love for me, and part of my time at Bard was in the film program. But at that time, it was very difficult. In fact, it was almost impossible to make films if you weren't in a film program because you just had no access to equipment, unlike now where you could buy a $1,000 camera and actually make a pretty good-looking film. But back then, it was like basically a camcorder or you had to go to school and borrow equipment and learn the you know, the sort of traditional formal method of filmmaking. And I just didn't have much tolerance for that. So music was immediately accessible to me. I could make music on anything. And I, I think it just grabbed me way quicker than anything else did, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and once I dropped out of Bard, I mean, my, my father wasn't incredibly happy with that decision just because, you know, he wanted me to kind of be on the straight and narrow and getting a real gig and all that. But he also wasn't super bummed out. I mean, you know, it's an expensive school and it was, <laughs> I think it was easy for him to justify not going there, you know? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. as soon as I made the decision to drop out, I just started focusing a hundred percent on music. Music as in playing out or as in recording or both? At that, yeah, at that time it was, I, I wanted ultimately to be in a successful band 
and touring and all that. But the studio was a was at that point only kind of a vehicle to get there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe even 10 years after that, maybe when I was in my mid to late 20s, where I, I actually realized that the studio, I actually really liked the studio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really love touring and being away from home as much as I kind of had fancied when I was younger. And the studio, I just, there's, there's an element of control of being in the studio that I really, really love. And there's a creative vulnerability that I, I don't think I recognized early on, but when I was in my late 20s, I started to acknowledge that that's what I loved about being in the studio. Right. And those sort of collaborations that you have that are short-lived mm-hmm. in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things, but they, you know, my extended family now is so big, and these people that I've spent, you know, weeks in a room with, you become closer to them than people you've known your entire life, yeah. you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really powerful experience. And it's a permanent experience because that music stays Absolutely. forever, you know? And yeah. Uh, yeah, and you have that memory of just like, yeah, man, we worked on that and that happened this day and this song was this and yeah. all of that. So you have these great memories of uh, of working like that. So so you interned. That's how you learned the ropes of, of um, yeah, the yeah. studio. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. just in, interning and assisting and doing basically... You know what would functionally would be a, an apprenticeship for any other um, discipline. Yeah, just just busting my ass, making no money for years. You know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember delivering. I was delivering pizza part time, and then going to the studio afterwards. Wow. I was selling high end audio gear, and then going to the studio. Like anything I had to do to pay the rent was purely a function of being able to get back to the studio. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. then you worked doing that a couple of years. And then what made you, what allowed you to say, you know what, I'm doing this on my own. I'm going to open up my studio and do it exactly the way I want to do it. At what point did you get there? That was, um, for me, it was about 2007. And I had been making, you know, yeah, I was 30 at the time. So I'd been working in studios like the Clubhouse. I did a lot of work at in Rhinebeck and Dreamland when Dreamland reopened, um, Allaire. So I was kind of bouncing with all these studios as a freelancer. And then I, I think it was just a matter of timing. It, I, I also sort of took a risk. I decided that I needed to have some autonomy and, and kind of have my own home base. So I built a mixing room in my house in just outside of Woodstock in 2007 and then after a couple of years of that, I would still record other studios, but then I'd mix all the work at, at my house. And then at probably two years into that, 2009 or so, I decided it was time to just build my own studio. And so I found this place, this really cool house for rent in Woodstock, just outside of town on California Quarry Road. And it was just like an old 70s house, kind of a classic Woodstock house three or four bedrooms, big open living room. And the rent was really cheap. Uh, the woman who owned it said, you know, I'll never sell this to you, but I'll also never sell it. You can stay here for as long as you want kind of thing. Man. And I rented it and, and stuck my studio in there and kind of just like, you know, hung my hat out to the wind and hoped that it would catch sale, you know, and it did. I mean, I, I, I think ultimately I'm probably one of the first I know Scott Petito has been up here doing this for a long time and maybe one or two other people, but I was one of the first people up here to like find a place, put a studio in it. That wasn't a big commercial facility like Bearsville or clubhouse or whatnot, but you know, make the decision to be upstate at a time when coming upstate wasn't really the thing that it is now. And um, it was sort of scary, but it worked, you know? And I, so I was at that studio for, 12 years. I moved out in 2021. But yeah, that was the, really the first, 2009 was the first time I went out on my own. And tell us the and, name uh, of your studio, because it's very eclectic and creative. Oh, yeah, the Isacon. Isacon. And I got the name, yeah. I got the name from when I was touring um, in the 2000s with this band called Soul Seppi, who actually Sophie, the cellist and singer in that band, used to live in Woodstock. Um, anyway, we went on tour in Europe and when we were in London, I saw this building called the Lawn Road Flats 
and it was originally called I, it was just a stri- very striking building. It looked very Bauhausian and kind of strange amongst this very traditional London neighborhood. And I was captivated by it, so I did some research. And it was originally built by a bunch of German Jewish architects who defected from Germany and intended to build this kind of communal living space. So it had all these apartments in it, but then a communal kitchen and communal dining area. Mm. But they called it the Isacon Building. And because they it was short, they contracted the terms isometric construction. So each unit, each apartment was the same exact construction because they wanted an efficient use of space and a completely equal use of space for people who are richer, people who are poorer. And it was mostly kind of like a a place where, you know, weird bohemians and weird artists lived. And I just found the concept really interesting. So I took the name because <laughs> I liked it. It's pretty cool. It's it's very unique. And uh, yeah, no, yeah. I absolutely love it. Now, you've moved around. Um, what happened to the lady that said she was never going to sell her place? You like had to leave there and start all over. Yes. Yeah, she, she um she got COVID and passed. She was <gasps> older. So. Oh, she, she passed during COVID, and then her daughter took over the house, and her daughter didn't have the same sympathies, and, mm-hmm. you know, she, this was at 2021, so I think she saw the writing on the wall, and probably somebody advised her to sell the place for mm-hmm. real estate money, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, she gave me first right of refusal at close to a million dollars, so I wow. said no. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm good. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a house that was probably worth $400,000 in the best of times. So mm-hmm. it was a tough ask. But anyway, as long story short, she ended up selling it. And I moved in July of 21. And I moved into the what was the old IBM space on Enterprise Drive in Kingston. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the county owned it because it was taken back by the county in tax dispute with the um, original owner. And I was in the con- the big conference room for about a year, and basically nobody else in the building. I think the only other people in the building were the Veterans Reintegration Organization, mm. and they were like on the other side of the building, so it felt like they were a complete different world away. And so I kind of had the run of the mill on this upstairs, massive conference room, these crazy hallways. The bathroom was like 300 yards away. It was just this really <laughs> wild space, and it was completely opposite of what I had in Woodstock, like overlooking the woods, overlooking the reservoir, you know, out in the middle of nature. And then I juxtaposed my new studio into this like industrial wasteland. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of cool. It was interesting. And in fact, that's where Heather Broderick and I did the track that you started off the hour with. That's where we recorded that track. Oh, okay. All right. All right. And And so I I was there for a year and Mm -hmm. then I ended up moving again to Kingston, Um, when the county was selling that building, I ended up getting out of there and moved for the third time. And now you are in Kingston, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm in Midtown Kingston. I'm in an old, um, it's a building called the Millard Building, and it was originally a Ford dealership back in the 20s and 30s. And so I'm in a part of the building that used to be where they would finish the final assembly of cars in the 30s for customers. Hmm. which is kind of cool because really I'm a big cool. car guy. Oh, yeah. 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 It's a cool space and it's industrial and I, I really like it here. It's where I'm sitting right now and it's comfortable for me. I, I like it a lot, but I think not to give up the ghost, but my wife and I are looking at moving South potentially to Virginia. Oh, and my dream has always been to have a farm, like basically a small horse farm mm-hmm. and have my studio on the property and just, you know, be in that place in my life where I don't really have to go anywhere anymore. Right, right. And (laughs) just have your, your space, your property, your house, Mm -hmm. your business, everything all in one. Wow. 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 Well, that'll be interesting. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to like finish a mix or finish a record and walk outside and ride my horse. That's what I've always wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I see no reason why you won't um, have that happen to you. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, really. I mean, you got to throw it out. Now, the other thing that I noticed, because we, I follow you on Facebook and Instagram, um, is that you travel and you travel to I work do, yeah. and you were yep. just in Iceland. And tell me about your travels and especially your recent travel with Iceland, because it's just an extraordinary place, or at least it looks to be. I've not been there. It really, truly is. Yeah, I was there. There, there's a studio on the north coast of Iceland called Floki Studios, and it was built a couple of years ago 
by this guy who owns a lot of, I think you would call them adventure lodges. So he has a like a place in Colorado. There's a place in Buenos Aires. There's a place in Spain or France, maybe the French, Al- uh, French Alps. And he built this place, this amazing adventure lodge in northern Iceland. But he's also a massive music fan. And he especially loves jam bands. So I, having worked with Bob Weir and then a couple of years ago making a record with the band Goose, I was invited over there to see the studio a couple of years ago. And I, I didn't take anybody up on the offer. I just, I was too busy. I had too much to do. And, and, and frankly, I think at the time I didn't take it that seriously. And um, earlier this year, in January of this past year, Joe Russo, the drummer, mm-hmm was invited over there to make a record and he wanted me to produce it. So we went over and made a record there for about a week and I kind of fell in love with it. It's, I had never been to Iceland. It was in, just completely enchanting. It looks like no other place on the planet. Mm-hmm. And even though we were in the studio the whole time, I just, I could tell that I needed to go back. So um, about a month later, I took my wife back for Valentine's day and we spent a couple of days and then, I was working on putting together a record with this artist, Kelly Scar, who used to, she used to sing with Moby for a long time, and she now lives in Kingston. And we'd been talking for years about making a really specific kind of record, the specificity of which is probably too insane to get into on the air. But the point being that we had been talking about making this really inspired record for a long time. And then it, it dawned on me that Iceland might be the best place to do it. So we put a band together. And we went over for almost two weeks and um, we, yeah, we got, flew into Reykjavik and rented our car, got our rental car and then drove up the coast, which is about a five and a half hour drive to the studio. Gorgeous. And it's like Mm. one of the most beautiful mind blowing drives you'd ever take in your life. Mm. And what's especially surreal about this trip is that the volcano had started to act Mm -hmm. up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, the whole time we're a bit like, oh no, are we going to have to leave early? Is the volcano going to erupt and, you know, like trap us in Iceland for three weeks? <laughs> Lo and behold, it didn't erupt, but it was it was a source of um, strange surrealness while we were there. Yeah. But Did... yeah, so we, we stayed in this weird house that's like three or four miles away from the studio and the studio is right on the ocean oh. and the, the adventure lodge that the the owner of the studio also owns made us food every day. So we had food taken care of, which was amazing. And just, I mean, just the, the scene there is just, I can't even put it into words. It's incredible. Yeah. And then we got a beautiful show of Northern lights, like three or four nights. Oh. We just saw the most amazing Northern Lights show. Oh. Oh. And I mean, photographs don't even do that justice, right? I mean, no, no, they really don't. Yeah. Because it's just, they really don't. Oh. The, the photographs are beautiful, but when you're standing there, and, you know, there's this thing that a photograph can never capture, and it's that feeling of humility. Mm-hmm. And when you're standing there and the sky is green with this force that you just simply can't understand as a human being why it's happening, <laughs> mm-hmm. you you start to, you know, a lot of things happen in your head. And you start to realize, like, wow, this is where religion comes from. This is where mythology comes from. Like, all this stuff that in the year 2023 we we have very specific views on you can easily see why a primitive human in a place like that would see something like the northern lights and just think like oh there's got to be more right you know there's got to be somebody out there doing this Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. really powerful and and a photograph can never really do that justice no 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 absolutely but boy it just it's just remarkable did you fly right out of stewart how great is that right here in newburgh you can go to reykjavik oh i know I, I know. I, I wish we did, but unfortunately, we we had to fly out of Newark because the the play airlines in Newburgh doesn't fly out every day. Oh, and, and you had to these, specific days. We, yeah, yeah. So we had to fly out of Newark, which was, I mean, you know, it's better than JFK. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and it's it's a nice flight. It's like six hours, and it's really pleasant. And it's and there you are, and you wake up in this like land of. Almost isolation, I always think it to be. I, yeah. I almost went, I went to Alaska instead in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. But it was a towing cost between Iceland or, or Alaska. We 
did Alaska, but uh, Iceland is on my list. I want to do Ring Road and just drive at my own oh, yeah. leisure and just, mm, yeah, no, it Absolutely. Looks, looks remarkable. It, it, it's funny that the piano player that was with us, uh, Sam Kassir, he plays with Josh Ritter, an amazing musician. He, oh. um, he was telling Thanks, us Josh. as we were driving, he had never been to Iceland either, but he had gone to Alaska maybe two years ago. And he said the similarities are pretty remarkable in mm. a lot of ways. Mm. I bet. Especially I bet. the fact, I mean, there's, 375,000 people in all of Iceland, which is like less than 10 square blocks of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's really, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're up there, like, you know, just there's something, especially in a creative atmosphere, like we were in making music, when you don't interact with other human beings for almost two weeks straight, you develop a really interesting kind of sub language amongst each other Mm. that, translates musically to what you're doing and it's really it's something that can't be replicated here no matter how isolated you are here right you're still around so much culture and so many other people that it almost doesn't really matter that you're isolated right you know right yeah yeah no absolutely yeah. um so just because i um have seen a dead show or two you recorded with bob weir how'd that happen i did yeah so josh kaufman who I don't know if he's ever been on your show, but no. he lives now in Kingston. Oh. Josh and I have worked on a million records together. We're very, very close friends. And I met Josh about 15 years ago now. And he put together this record. He had this dream. He's been a Grateful Dead fan forever, and he had a dream of doing a record with Bobby. Mm-hmm. And he had the opportunity to present it to Bob's people at some point, and I guess he was really into it. So the long and short story is that Bob had this collection of cowboy songs that he had from a lot when he was younger because he grew up sort of orphaned in Wyoming. He would spend the summers cowboying in Wyoming. Hmm. And so he had all these cowboy songs and he wanted to make a record that was ostensibly a folk record and not a jam band record at all. And so Josh produced it. I recorded and mixed it. And um, I ended up also taking some films and making uh, films that they would play during the tour on stage, which was pretty cool. But so, um, we so, did that record in 2015, 2016. Uh, and yeah, it was it's the record called Blue Mountain. It's his last solo record. And it's an amazing record. Uh, and how, I mean, so so Bobby is like here in the area. You brought, you had lunch, you had dinner or something with him. Oh, yeah. And you yeah, ran yeah. into like places and people recognized him or what happened? Oh, there? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you probably... And we were in, we were in this was you know my studio was still in Woodstock so we were constantly going to Yum Yum or um at the time we were bread alone every day and people were just you know every, every day people were freaking out yeah I bet. which was hilarious yeah yeah I can imagine especially in Woodstock like you know everybody would oh, know yeah. who he was like what the heck are we seeing here so yeah totally yeah. Yeah, very. And, you know, cool. it was funny. Like when when he came to my studio, the very first day that we were working together, Josh and I, Bob was out in the room doing a vocal track, and I turned down the volume for a second and just looked at Josh and was like, "This is sort of like having the American Paul McCartney in the room." Mm-hmm. It is. And he was like, "Yeah, it absolutely is." And it felt, I mean, for us at the time, uh-huh. I don't think we understood the weight of it, you know. But when I look back and realize like the stories that he would tell. And the amount of time that I spent with him, you know, I got to spend time, a really serious amount of time with somebody who's really seen and done it all musically. Yeah. And that's kind of amazing. And especially somebody who's who's just had the run that he's had. It's incredible. Oh, you know? absolutely. It's my dream. And I'll throw it out yeah. there because until you have, until you throw it out there, it never happens to speak to right. one of the members of the dead, um, be it oh, yeah. Phil, be yeah. it Mickey, be it Billy. Or Bobby, you know, so I mean, not yeah. that that will ever happen, but you know, hey, you got to dream it. So, got to um, dream it. Yeah. Got to dream it. Got to dream it. And I spent so much time in the 80s kind of just following their music. So, anyway, but okay, so there, there's Bobby. You've also worked with so many other great people. Let's talk about one more band because you also sent me some really good music that I want to get out there to the audience. Tell me about anything you want to tell me, some of the the music or some of the bands that just stick out. And you've worked with too many. I know it's hard to pick, but just talk, oh, yeah. talk about some of them. Well, I'll, I'll talk about Bonnie Light Horseman right now because I'm mixing the newest record that's coming out soon 
literally as we speak. Um, Bonnie Light, Bonnie Light is led by Josh Kaufman, the gentleman I just talked about, is a close friend of mine, and he produced the Bobby record. And Anais Mitchell sings in the band. Eric Johnson sings in the band. Mm. And one of my favorites, I mean, when they made the record, the very first Bonnie Light Horseman record a few years ago, I think we all kind of knew it was special at the time. And then that record went up for a Grammy, uh, or went up for maybe two Grammys. It didn't win. I think it lost to Bonnie Raitt or something, which is perfectly fine by all of us. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I think at the, at the time there was kind of this desire to to see these traditional songs reimagined in a folk pop sort of sensibility. And that Bonnie Light record did that. And, and so anyway, that's been a big favorite of mine. And it's also been one of those records that people, when they reach out to me to work with them, if we've never met, it's something people always reference. So I'm quite proud of those records. And I've mixed now, this is the third record I've mixed and mastered, and I'm finishing it um, this week. Oh, wow. And then, um, nice. yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and and Josh, you know, Josh moved up in, we had worked together for years, and then he decided to move up just in the sort of the late stage of the pandemic. He decided to move to Kingston. Um, so he lives here now. We see each other all the time and work constantly together, which is great. Oh, my gosh. I may hit you up for his email or something. I'd love to have him oh, on. Oh, yeah. No, mm. no, you should definitely have him on. He's got so many things to say, and he's a, just one of my favorite humans in the world, aside from being one of my favorite guitar players ever. Oh, that's and awesome. And the fact that we get to make music together is, is an amazing honor for me. Yeah, yeah. It's really great when you have such great camaraderie with people, and the, the, the feel, the art that you do is just, um, yeah, it, I'm sure it, it it connects you in a, in a really special way. So, no, it sure does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You've got a. Let's talk about your website because if people are out there and they need someone to mix their record or produce a record or engineer it, tell me about your website and where people can find you, Dan Goodwin. Uh, Bet yeah, the best place is www.djamesgoodwin.com, and from that you can sort of see like photographs I've taken, which is a part of the thing that I love to do as a hobby, but you know, I do it anyway. And then you can reach out to me via the website and then Instagram. I'm D James Goodwin. I try not to post a lot of like work stuff on Instagram, but it's a public profile and I just post a lot of my travels and stuff. And, and those are the two main places. Your, your photographs are just breathtaking. I love the one oh, on you. your website with all the, what are they called? I'm so old school. Forgive me. Oh, the earbuds. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Where was that? Yeah, that was in Paris um, at an art museum. I can't remember if that was, that wasn't Musée d'Orsay. It was the um, more modern art museum in Paris, but my, it's funny, actually, I was working, actually, this ties everything in together. So in March of 2020, uh, Josh Kaufman and I went to the UK to make a record with the band This Is The Kit. And we worked at Peter Gabriel's studio, Real World. Wow. Which is, yeah, it was an amazing honor to be there. Whoa. And going going back again early next year to work on another record. Was Get out. Damn. Yeah. Wow. So we, we went there, we were in, it was, late February, early March of 2020, the pandemic was just kind of starting to gain steam. And, you know, every day that we were over there was kind of getting weirder and weirder. But I had already made plans at the tail end of that trip. I wanted to I wanted to fly my wife to Paris for her birthday. Mm -hmm. And so we had that all booked. And then we finished the record. I went to Paris. My wife flew into Paris. And we were in Paris for a week while the pandemic was just completely blowing up, Ugh. which was incredibly surreal. And yeah. <laughs> and we went to, you know, all the amazing art museums in Paris. We ate the best food we've ever eaten. Mm. And then we flew back at the end of that week to a completely shut down, almost post-apocalyptic United States. And, yeah. you know, the rest is history. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm glad you got your last hurrah in before everything shut down and that you were able actually to come back. Um, no yeah. kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Paris. Oh, I just love, love that city. And the art no, there the is just the, the architecture. You walk down any yeah. street and just the architecture is amazing. And then you go into these 
museums that you could just live for days in, you know, I mean, there's no human that could go through the Louvre. No, nobody. You'd have to literally spend two weeks there. They have, I don't know how, it's it's insane. It's insane. Totally insane. Yeah. You know, the good byproduct of being there when we were there is that when we saw the Mona Lisa, there was like five people in line, which apparently never happened. (laughs) Never, never. Never. We actually got to spend like two or three minutes just looking at this painting. Were you, you know, underwhelmed being, or overwhelmed by Mona Lisa painting? I think I was. I, I think I was adequately whelmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 I, I found it really captivating and beautiful. I understood why. I, I think seeing it in person, I understood why it has the, the legacy that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, if the line had been, you know, a hundred people deep, I don't think I would have cared nearly as much. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the fact that I got to spend a few minutes in front of it, actually looking at it and staring into the eyes of the, of the character was probably the deal break. That's, that's the thing that made it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand. For me, it was just a a lot smaller than I thought. I don't know why I thought it would be so much larger, um, Right. Than it was, because I guess we're all like heard of it, you know, and you think, oh, this painting yeah. must be larger than life. And and but it's not. It's not. And um, yeah. Well, yeah. that's the thing that sort of struck me is that in this large room, the, the the pureness, the purity of that very small painting. And it's very, you know, the humility of that small painting was really kind of powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it wasn't massive and, and that you actually had to engage in it in a certain way to understand why it is what it is. You know, there's something about that that it was pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, it truly was. Yeah, yeah. So listen, Dan, it's been a real honor having you on here today. I'm going to oh, play This you. Is The Kit, This Is What You Did, and some of these other tracks that you sent and, and get this out there. And um, no, it's really been a, a huge joy. And please, when you have some more recordings coming out please just reach out i'd love to have you back on and uh we'll feature some of some some more work of yours i would love that thanks rita yeah absolutely all right i will be in touch thank you for your time here and um, i'll talk to you soon dan thank you all right thanks yeah take care bye Bye. 91.3 wvkrd jamesgoodwin.com the isacon recording studio right in Kingston. He's a, Dan is a mixer, producer, engineer, and a heck of a photographer and musician as well. Let's take a listen to the one of the tracks that he has worked on. This is called This Is What You Did. This is The Kit. 91.3 WVKR.
what they said This is what you get This is what you did This is what they want Why are you still here? This is what they said This is what you get This is WVKR. That was Red Western Sky by Muzz. And we also heard This Is What You Did. This Is The Kit. So two tracks that D. James Goodwin, Dan Goodwin, worked on. Today's guest, if you missed part of that interview, want to hear it again or came in late, it'll be uploaded tonight on the Local Motion YouTube page. You can also give it a a subscribe, give a like or a follow on the Facebook page. Again, both under Local Motion on 91.3 WVKR. Dr. J is in the house with Irie Groove. I'll be back next week. I just had a last minute cancellation next week, so I'm up in the air about a guest. In two weeks, Jack Petroselli will be joining me. In three weeks, Allison Miller. And then I'm going to take two weeks off at the end of the year just to relax and take a little time off. Um, But other than that, we're going to keep it going here. And um, yeah, it's been a great year and we're going to continue to do that music and 
do it into next year and beyond and all of that. So this is a track again by Dan Goodwin, djamesgoodwin.com to check him out because he's quite the talent and has worked on an amazing amount of music. This is one by Jesse Marchant called Hatchet of Destiny. I will be back next Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Until then, I wish you all peace. Ducked in a corner, lasting is the way. With a storm behind the stern, all more honest that's likely now found me. And caught in the middle, cannot force a listening to WVKR FM Poughkeepsie, Vassar College independent radio since 1971, broadcasting throughout the Hudson Valley on 91.3 and all over the world.